What fan theories have blown your mind with their devastating logic? I like the one about the Rugrats. Ever wondered how Angelica could talk to the babies? Angelica is the only one who can talk to the babies because they're a figment of her imagination. She's spoiled, sad, and lonely because her mother is constantly working and has no time for her. Her relationship with her dad is superficial and unsubstantial. No real love is ever shown to her. So how did it come about that Angelica would have to imagine these babies? Tommy died soon after childbirth, a fact reflected by Stu never leaving the basement, inventing toys that his son will never play with. Chucky died in the car crash along with his mom, also reflected in the actions of his father. The crash has made him a pathetic nervous wreck most of the time. Most interesting is Phil and Lil. There never were any twins. There was just one baby. However, this baby was a stillborn and Angelica never knew the sex of the stillborn, so she invented twins of different genders. Sadly, Angelica never uses her imaginary friends to comfort or entertain her. Instead, she's mean and nasty to them. She's invented this relationship with these babies so that she can vent her frustrations on being a spoiled, lonely brat, who has seen much hardship from these unfortunate parents. Frustrations that can't be satisfied by a typical childhood relationship with a doll, albeit a Cynthia one. You've definitely made me want to take a second look at that show now. I read a theory about Courage the Cowardly Dog that said Courage is actually a normal dog and he sees the world through a dog's eyes. All the villains in the show are just normal people, but to a little dog, they seem scary. They don't actually live in the middle of nowhere, but since his owners are too old to take him out for walks, he only knows what's around his immediate property, and everything beyond that is nothing because he's never seen it. The story of Aladdin is made up by the salesman at the beginning to persuade you to buy the lamp. This one isn't really a theory as much as it is kind of the way the movie goes. You just choose whether or not you want to believe the actual story. Doctor Who The Doctor's name is a word of power, something that was introduced to the series in Moffat's Series 3 episode The Shakespeare Code. What does the Doctor's name do? It unlocks the time war. This is the reason he trusts no one but himself to know his own name. During the ending of Forest of the Dead, the Tenth Doctor also states to River that there could be only one way she could have known his name. This is also the reason why the Silence are terrified of the Doctor's name. And why not? It would release the Daleks and the Time Lord from the locked time war. Willy Wonka knew those children would die in his factory. After Augustus gets sucked up the chute, they all hop on board the boat through the Tunnel of Doom. The boat doesn't have two extra vacant seats though. It was designed with prior knowledge that they would lose two participants before that point. Later, they drive a cream-spewing car with only four seats. Did they have another car waiting in the garage in case the others made it? Of course not. Willy Wonka uses children to make candy. You kind of took a dark turn at the end of that one there, but there's a lot of fan theories around this movie, and a lot of them do tend to be dark. I like the idea that at the end of The Thing in 1982, when Kurt Russell offers Keith David the bottle and he drinks out of it, that the bottle is actually filled with gasoline from one of the Molotovs he was throwing earlier. Since the creature wouldn't understand what gasoline tastes like, it wouldn't spit it out. The original Scooby-Doo series is set after a horrible economic depression. Everything is abandoned and falling apart, and all of the villains are people who would normally be really respected. Professors, museum curators, celebrities, who have fallen into hard times just like everyone else. How many times have the gang helped someone not go out of business? 
This one is my personal theory. That 70s show is a vague sequel to Happy Days. At the end of Happy Days, Richie and Ralph go off to the Korean War, or at least they're training for it. Fonzie stays behind. At this point, you must remember that the Fonz was always the person who kept Richie cool. Flash forward 20 years, Richie, now Red, has become bitter after the war, and without the catalyst that was Arthur Fonzarelli, his friendship with fool neighbor Bob, or Ralph, has fallen apart. Happy Days was made in the 70s and set in the 50s. That 70s show was in the 90s and set in the 70s. I do agree that that 70s show was definitely trying to capture the same lightning in a bottle that Happy Days had, just for a newer generation. You're definitely onto a connection there in terms of audience appeal and general timeline, but I don't think that the characters carry over in any way. The existence of Spongebob and his strange friends is the result of radiation from nuclear arms testing that was performed at the Bikini Atoll in the late 40s and early 50s. Since they live under the atoll, the town is known as Bikini Bottom. In the beginning of 2001 A Space Odyssey, a black screen is displayed while music plays for a few minutes before the film starts. It's believed that this is the monolith tilted 90 degrees and taking up the entire screen, as if the entire film is a technological and evolutionary advancement that Kubrick is bestowing us. Sean Connery's character in The Rock is actually James Bond. He got caught spying on America and was hidden away in various prisons. This man does not exist in the United States or Great Britain, says FBI Director Womack. This ties in with the theories of James Bond being a codename for different agents. One that hasn't been brought up yet is Blade Runner. Ridley Scott finally closed the debate a few years ago as to whether or not Deckard was actually a replicant, and he totally was. But to take this one step further, he was a replicant implanted with the memories of Gaff, Edward James Olmos's character. Gaff was actually the top Blade Runner, but was sidelined due to some injury or illness, hence the cane. So Deckard was created and implanted with Gaff's memories to continue the search for Roy Batty and his friends. This explains why Gaff never really does anything aside from Drive Deckard around, and why he treats him with such contempt. Gaff's origami also hint at Deckard's true nature, as they seem to demonstrate an insight into what Deckard is feeling, a chicken when he's feeling scared, a stick man with a boner when he's about to meet the smoking hot Rachel, and the unicorn from Deckard's recurring dream. It also helps explain the compliment Gaff pays Deckard at the end of the film, after he apparently hovered above the building and watched Batty nearly kill Deckard without intervening, he lands and says, You've done a man's job, which is the highest praise you could give a replicant. When it's all laid out like that, I hardly even think it should be considered a theory. It's just clearly what was going on if you take a few minutes to think about it. Okay, let's be honest, Blade Runner is kind of a mess. There's way too many different cuts. And as a result, we have all kinds of fan theories coming up around this one. Always that Deckard's a replicant, which apparently was confirmed that I didn't know. Personally, my favorite book of all time is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the book that this movie is based off of. If you have a remote interest in Blade Runner, take all this conspiracy stuff, put it off to the side, and read the book objectively, without taking all of this movie stuff into account. Deckard is a completely different character with completely different motivations in the book. The Jetsons and the Flintstones are two portions of the same society. 
The people living in bedrock are actually members of a far future society, one may say post-human, that have rejected the day-to-day -day electronic assistance to live like their long-dead ancestors did, or at least what they think they lived like. This explains the talking animals, they're just synthetic creations. It's been so long since any actual animal lived that didn't have human communication bred and written into it that the ferals don't realize how silly it is to be talking with creatures that didn't even exist along early humans. How Garfield is actually dying of starvation and just imagine John and Odie. There was a reference to this in a Halloween themed comic. Garfield woke up in a condemned and abandoned house. He calls out for Odie and John, but there's no answer. He then wills the illusion back on himself and continues his delusions about his family. To all you Potterheads out there, when Sybil Trelawney predicted Harry was born in midwinter, she was laughed at, as Harry's birthday was in July. However, it is a known fact that, spoiler alert, Voldemort's soul is inside Harry. It's possible that Professor Trelawney was detecting the part of Voldemort inside Harry as Voldemort was born mid-December. Pinky and the Brain One is a genius, the other's insane. Brain constantly plans to take over the world, suggesting he's insane. Pinky often finds ways to ruin these plans. So, who is the genius? You just gave me a whole new appreciation for Pinky. I remember there was a pretty good one about how R2-D2 was Luke's father, and this of course was before Empire Strikes Back came out. Luke's father was mortally wounded by Vader. His brain was removed from his body and placed in life support inside a robot. This is why C-3PO is so worried about R2's operational status. C-3 knows that R2 has biological components. Turns out, Luke, who got very little Jedi training, isn't all that great. It's his Jedi father inside of R2 every time. Think about it. Early on, when Luke does something with the Force, R2 is always there, except for the one time on Hoth. And what is R2 doing at that time? Deploying a long-range Force antenna we never see again. This one is obviously completely invalidated by, what, 30 years of the franchise now, but I thought it was fun. Archer TV Show Whenever someone eats at the Chinese restaurant and brings home a tinfoil swan full of leftovers, they're going to betray the company. Episode 1, when Archer wants to break into the mainframe and erase and alter his financial records. Episode 9, Lana is going to join Odin. And there's an episode where Cyril takes a bribe at the restaurant and his bribe money is in the swan. I'm pretty sure this theory is out there somewhere else, but I've yet to find it. In the beginning of Finding Nemo, the father imagines one son survived when, in reality, his whole family was destroyed. The movie is an allegory of the father's journey through the stages of grief. Denial. He won't let his son go to school because it's not safe. Anger. He scolds his son for venturing out of his control. Bargaining. He puts up with an amnesiac travel buddy to help him find his son. Despair. He sees his son flush down the drain. Acceptance. He learns to let go and let things be the way they are. Almost everyone in the story tells the father he has to let go of his son. His travels take him to the land down under, aka the underworld. The movie ends with him saying goodbye as his son visually disappears into the void. And the kicker? Nemo means nobody in Latin. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Will was murdered on the basketball court in West Philly. The taxi driver is God. That's why we felt the cab was different or rare. God takes him to heaven where he lives in a mansion with his wealthy aunt and uncle and slowly works out his issues and hardships.
At the end of Kevin Smith's dogma, Bethany Sloan, the last scion, i.e. God's chosen to continue his good works on earth as a last resort should there need to be one, is saying goodbye to the 13th apostle, a gentleman named Rufus. During this final exchange, before he returns to heaven, Rufus suggests that Bethany name her son after him. She scoffs, but the idea is implanted. Now let's assume that Bethany Sloan, the last scion, names her son, the new last scion in the bloodline, Rufus, after taking his suggestion to heart. Does anyone know anyone from the future that is charged with saving humanity as we know it that is named Rufus? How about Rufus from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? That's right, Rufus from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is the last scion, sent back in time by God to save Earth by teaming up with an unlikely band of teenage heroes and historical figures. This is why I consider Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure a part of the View Askew universe. George Carlin also happens to be in both movies, but I'm not sure if I can come up with a link between those two. And in case someone mentions that Rufus was sent back in time from the year 26XX or something, keep in mind it could still be him. Time travel, you know? Or he could just be a part of Rufus as the last scion bloodline that goes all the way into the extreme future. Back to the future. The Doc is ready to kill himself along with Marty in that parking lot during the first time travel scene. Not only has he never tested the time machine, but he claims that many of his inventions have been failures. So during the moment when he's about to find out if his life's work was a huge success or a complete waste, he not only drives the DeLorean towards himself, but also grabs on to Marty when he tries to run away. If that first time travel test was a failure, they both would have been killed, which is exactly what Doc wanted had the experiment been a failure. You know, when you lay it out like that, it does make sense, but I always prefer to think of Doc as more crazy than sad. In my neighbor Totoro, Totoro is the god of death. Here are my points. One, it's saying that Totoro is in fact a messenger of death and whoever sees him will soon die. The hospital that the sister's mother was in was based on a real hospital for terminally ill patients. Number two, later in the story, the villagers find a slipper in a pond, which is in fact Maze. At this point, she's already drowned in the pond. Satsuki lied that the slipper wasn't Maze out of denial. From this scene forward, the sisters appear to have no shadow. Number three, Satsuki pleaded to Totoro and the cat bus to take her to where Mei is. While on the cat bus, she says, nobody can see us. This scene is Satsuki leading herself to the land of the dead by taking the cat bus. Number four, at the hospital, the mother says, I think I feel Mei and Satsuki smiling there in that tree. Why don't the sisters go and see their mom if they're already there? Why do they just leave the corn there instead? It's said that the sisters were dead at that point, and the Japanese pronunciation of corn is similar to kill child. Number five, the final scenes seem to be a happy epilogue, but they in fact happened before the major events of the movie. And finally, the movie was set in a place in Japan where there was a case of a murdering of two sisters which happened in the 1960s. This event took place on May 1st, while the sisters' names are Satsuki, May in Japanese, and Mei, May in English. In the real-life case, the younger sister was missing first, and the older sister was seen to be looking for her frantically. 
The next day, the younger sister's body was found in the forest. The older sister was in such a state of shock and kept rambling ambiguous words about seeing a cat monster or a great big raccoon monster to the police. The sisters were in fact from a single parent family as well. The mother died of illness. An alternate theory I hear a lot is that there are no children. They can't have kids because of the wife's illness. And the father, in his loneliness, is writing in his diary about the kids he wished he had. He's often seen writing throughout the movie. In Inception, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is in the real world in the ending scene. He talks about how totems only work for specific people. The top was his wife's totem. It wouldn't work for him. His totem is his wedding ring. In the dream world, his wife is alive, and he's still married to her. Therefore, he wears his wedding ring. In all the scenes in the real world, his wife is dead, and he's no longer married. Because of this, he doesn't wear his ring. In the last scene, he isn't wearing his ring. Time to re-watch Inception and pay far too close attention to Leo's left hand. There's a theory in Ferris Bueller's Day Off that Cameron invented Ferris and he's living out what Cameron wishes he could be. Makes the movie mind-blowing. In Kill Bill, the bride doesn't kill Bill. First, you have to put her rampage in chronological order. She wakes up in the hospital, kills Buck, flies to Japan, kills everyone in the tea house, then comes back to the States to kill Vernita Green. We know this because O-Ren's name is already crossed off the list when she parks outside Vernita's house. In the process of killing Green, she accidentally does so in front of her young daughter. Her immediate reaction is shame. She tries to hide the knife behind her leg. From that point on, she doesn't kill anyone else. Bud dies from a snake bite. Daryl Hannah's character has her eye plucked out, but is still alive. Then we get to Bill. They tell the story of the five-point palm fist of death technique, but in the training sequences, it's never shown that she learns it. We're specifically told that Pai Mei never taught it to anyone. The other part that's suspicious is the play acting. When Beatrix first runs into the house, there's a play scene with her daughter. They pretend to shoot her, and she pretends to be dead. This is what Bill does. At the end of the film, Beatrix is curled up on a bathroom floor crying, thank you, thank you. Who is she thanking? Bill, for letting her go. It was the only way for either of them to exit the situation gracefully. During the end credits, each of the people on the list who died gets a line through their name. Daryl Hannah is marked with a question mark because she was left alive. But Bill? Bill's name isn't marked at all. Because they never killed Bill in Kill Bill. In The Matrix, people aren't used as an energy source. That's physically impossible, as it would take more energy to keep people alive than you'd get out of them. It's just the misinformation humans have. The machines were built to care for humans, and they're still going about that task. The machines think they're giving humans a better and more peaceful life. When people escape and try to free themselves, they're actually being let into another level of the matrix. The machines realize some people need to strive and think that they're important, so they construct a false reality in which they can do so. The Sopranos The guy in the members-only jacket walked out of the bathroom and killed Tony in front of Carmela and Anthony. It's the reason why the screen cuts to black. In a previous episode, Bobby asks him what he thinks death is like, and Tony says, I bet it just cuts to black. The symbolism was pretty much hitting you over the head. How the family was posed like the Last Supper, how Tony was eating an orange earlier, how the episode where Tony was shot earlier was titled Members Only, how we kept hearing bells all through the episode. He definitely got whacked, and like he said, he never heard it coming. 
In the first Alien film, I always thought that the Wayland yutani Corporation already knew about the aliens and were looking for them. Not really so much mind-blowing, but I think it makes the film more sinister and creepy. I really love the theory that in Inspector Gadget, the Inspector we know is actually the second Inspector, built as a completely robotic replacement after the first was lost in action. He was loaded with his old memories, and nobody would have been the wiser, except that the original Inspector Gadget didn't actually die. Upon returning from whatever disaster caused his bosses to give up on him as KIA, and now horribly disfigured, he discovers his replacement is living his life, even with his dog and raising his niece. The original inspector snaps and vows to devote the rest of his life to the destruction of the ungodly replacement. He disavows everything he once knew and loved, even going so far as to take a new name, Dr. Claw. After watching and reading Fight Club about a hundred times, I'm fully aware that Marla Singer is also a figment of the main character's imagination. She's the living embodiment of everything he originally hates about himself, and by the end of the movie, he's able to live with it, as well as absorb what he needed out of Tyler. If you watch it in this context, you'll see clear hints to this. The meetings stop working when the things he's running from follow him there, being Marla. He's screwing her as Tyler, the idealized version of himself, but as a half-disgust, half-envy thing going on as Jack. When you subscribe, make sure to hit the bell to turn on notifications. Put the playlist on in the background to finish listening to all the stories, linked at the top of the description. And if you like Am I the Genius, give Am I the Jerk a shot, linked in the description as well. Either way, thanks a lot for watching, and we'll see you guys next time.